0: The thread on taking yourself too seriously, I think take what you do seriously, I think take the results of your customers seriously, but I don't think that you can take yourself too seriously. And so that's one thread. But the thread that you started with is very, very different, which is the idea of intelligent people complicating things. Herb Kelleher was the CEO of Southwest Airlines. and. There was a reporter one time who asked him, so Southwest is known, I guess, for like people who smile all the time, all their flight attendants, everybody is super friendly. So the reporter asked him, they said, you know, how, like, what's your trick? Like, do you, like, what do you do for training? Like, how do you get people to, to smile all the time? And he just looks at the reporter and he goes, it's easy, we just hire smiley people. They could develop extensive human resources programs. They could do all of these programs to empower people to smile more, but empowering people to change is hard. An easier solution is to just find people doing all the same things exhibiting the behaviors that we already want. We've been indoctrinated to assume that it has to be hard if it's going to work.
1: Welcome to the Strength Connection Podcast, a show to share stories, insights, and experiences in strength physically, mentally, and spiritually. I'm Michael Krukowski, host of the Strength Connection, and I'm so grateful that you can join me today. So in these episodes, I connect with some of the most inspiring and successful individuals to chop it up and learn from true life experiences that have helped them become who they are, the strongest versions of themselves. One of the greatest ways I've always learned the most important lessons is through stories. We all have them, and they make us who we are. So let's dive in. Here we go. Welcome back to the Strength Connection Podcast, everybody. John Goodman. It's been a minute, man. Good to I see know. you. It's
0: been uh, approximately seven days. How are you doing?
1: Exactly. No, great to see. You. Appreciate you coming back. Yeah, so, All right, so we're gonna dive right in. So, uh, for listeners, if you did not listen to the last one, which we just released after uh, this one, and we just diving into a lot of the stuff that John's been working on, specifically the twenty mindset shifts of the last year that you had in, in good podcast fashion from the last time we got through about half of the things <laughs> that I thought yeah. we would get into from just good flow. So. Uh, We're just going to keep rolling on some of these things. I've got some interesting questions. Some other things I'd really like to have you dive a little bit deeper into because like I think many people listening, I had some questions about some of the ways that you articulated it and um, yeah, we'll just dive in and get rolling. Cool. Perfect. Yeah. So I think one of the things I wanted to ask you about is you wrote an interesting thread on it where computers thrive on being efficient, but humans thrive on strategic inefficiency. Can you just explain? Can you explain that a little bit more of how humans thrive on that?
0: Yeah, man. Yeah, I think there's a lot of power these days, and not making sense. And and I think that in a lot of ways, computers are like your brain, than be- but better, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: In that, if you think about like what school was, school used to be a straight path to a job, and that job, in a lot of cases, can now be replaced by a machine. I think about some relatives of mine where one of the people in the relationship is uh, is indian is from calcutta Mm -hmm. and so their kids are half indian and they're putting their kids in like all of these insane math programs and stuff like that because they think and they're 100 right that basically asia is going to just kick the shit out of north america in terms of the schooling Mm -hmm. and the academics and stuff and so they're worried about that and um And I don't think that they're wrong, but I guess where I question that is, are those the types of the pieces of knowledge that are going to be really, really valuable in the Mm. future? Like being better at math. I mean, creative thinking, resourcefulness, I think is very important. I think being able to make connections that other people perhaps can't make because you've had a lot of varied experiences is going to be really valuable. I mean, anything that can be easily taught can be easily taught to a computer, and any connection that's logical has already been incorporated into a, into an algorithm. Mm. So anything that makes sense, a computer has already learned. And at the same time, wow. even if it hasn't, you can easily teach a computer that right. thing. And and by the way, computers don't sleep. All of them are connected, okay. and they don't die. Was if mm. a human dies, a new human has to start over. <laughs> and And so I'm thinking about all of this. I'm thinking about the increase in power of computing and where the world is going. And I'm no expert on on the power of it, but I've read a lot about job disruption. I've thought a lot about it. I've spoken to a lot of smart people. And what it seems to me is that computers thrive on efficiency and humans seem to be the opposite. We thrive when we're strategically inefficient. The harder a time we have figuring out where a unique perspective came from, I think the better. I think that we're increasingly going for that kind of goosebumps, like hair sticking up off of our own, holy shit, where did that come from moment, Mm. as we're putting this stuff together. And so how do you do that? You gather experiences, you talk to people, you read widely, and you free up time to dabble. And that's what's missing (laughs) a lot. James Watson, molecular biologist, uh, one of the co-discoverers of the double helix structure of DNA, one of the things he said is, it's necessary to be slightly underemployed if you are to do something significant. Mm-hmm. I think that aimless exploration is the pathway to discover. And so in order to do that, you gotta get out of your bubble. You gotta learn things that the algorithm doesn't spoon feed you.
1: Mm-hmm. I'll
0: give you a couple examples in my life. Sure. I attended a mega church event. I'm Jewish. I got a subscription to a magazine about current events in the United Kingdom. I live in Canada. Right. I hired a boxing coach in Mexico. I'm a five foot four pacifist who's never thrown a punch. <laughs> where is the value in all of this? Mm-hmm. I have absolutely no clue. No idea. But I do think that over time, this is going to coalesce into something unique and something beautiful. Maybe you'll learn about speaking and persuasion from the Make a church pastor, or maybe you'll meet somebody somewhere who knows something about something, or maybe there's a million other maybes. And the other, But it's difficult to make sense of, and it's difficult in the moment to see the value of those things that you're doing, because it feels like everybody else is moving faster than you at the same time. And you're like, I'm right. dabbling over here, but they're all figuring out some sort of hack or algorithm or whatever it is, because the benefits are often not immediate. I'll give you another example from my mm-hmm. own life. I connected with a fabulous literary agent at a fitness event over a wonderful little bookstore called Friends of the Library, which happened to be located in her mother's hometown of Lahaina on the island of Maui in Hawaii, where I lived for a few months a decade ago for no good reason other than it was an adventure. And why the hell would I not just move to Maui for a few months to just figure mm-hmm. out my shit as a like a young guy? And then that literary agent ended up representing my book. That's how I got my book deal
1: mm-hmm.
0: is in large part, because I was able to connect with her in a way that others weren't, because I knew about—I mean, it wasn't that big of a stretch, right? She's a she's clearly of mixed ethnicity, and so what do you do when you're making small talk with somebody? You 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 ask them where they're from, right? Mm-hmm. Whatever. Yeah. Right? So she said, "My mom's from Maui," and it's okay. There's—I I don't know if you know about it, but there was this wonderful little bookstore there. It's called Friends of the Library. You know the Banyan Tree. You know that that plaza in Lahaina. Mm-hmm. And right tucked in behind this thing called Friends of the Library. And she just stops for a minute and she looks at me and she goes, That's where my mom used to take me when I was. Wow. (laughs) It's become a bit of a joke amongst a lot of the business communities that I'm in that I can't step into a room and not speak to somebody about their hometown Mm -hmm. because I've just gained so many experiences because I've traveled so much. And so I think about like the benefits of like that Mm -hmm. that you could never measure. But also uh, maybe nothing will come of it, right? And I think that's all fine too. This is one of those things. So in this, in the obvious choice book that I'm writing, you know, the obvious choice is really a philosophy on business and on life. It's because yeah. I just all of the different books as I was trying to go my business or figure out my way in business, I found assumed things about me that were not true, which is grow at all costs make as much money as humanly possible, give up today in the hopes that you might be able to have some freedom in the future. And here's, and then everything about scaling and building teams and stuff, it was just not for me. It wasn't for somebody like me. I didn't want any of all that stuff. So I'm writing this book about kind of this life business philosophy that has a whole bunch of different tenets, which some of the ones are you mm-hmm. that you're getting into here. And I'm trying to give frameworks to as many of them as I can. This is probably the only case where there isn't a framework, Mm. where I recognize that it's not particularly useful advice. I recognize that it's airy-fairy stuff. Mm -hmm. There's no steps to success. There's no action steps.
1: Yeah.
0: It's, what is it? It's by definition, this process is messier than the floor underneath my kid's high chair every damn time he eats.
1: (laughs) like it has to be right I think that's really the the beauty behind it though right it's like as you're speaking it's like creative endeavors comes from like non-productive time yeah I think I heard Neil deGrasse Tyson speak about that it's like if you're Mm -hmm. never bored like if you're never in a moment where you're actually bored or trying things like you're always looking for something to be productive then you can't let actually those creative juices open up like where do ideas come from they come from kind of being if you're always busy, if you're always productive, new things can't really arise. So, mm-hmm. as you said, it's like, it is, it's interesting because, you know, especially being in an, an entrepreneurial field or like a creative type field, I think that's the most, like, that's the coolest thing about being human. And I think we're seeing it even more now because AI is getting so powerful. So, I'm, I remember there was a, I don't know how, why this just popped in my head, but the, the lewis capaldi the singer who uh, wrote okay. the song like uh someone you know someone who loved and it's such a deeply powerful personal song that he wrote when he was going through a lot of different you know different things in his life and there was a clip of a concert he has where he was trying to sing it and he, all these memories were coming up he couldn't even get through it and the huh. whole crowd starts singing all of the lyrics right and it's like this moment of just goosebumps where you realize how much it's not just the it's not just the song like the cadence and the melody of it yeah. it was the emotion that was in it that touched so many people and i remember hearing this because post malone said something about ai can create songs just like i would right now you can yeah. ask it like write these songs and the ly- like the the melodies the lyrics and stuff like that yeah it's there but what's missing from that is there's that deep emotional connection behind what's saying it. And as you said, I don't think it's something that it's like a one, two, three step framework that you can put yeah. your finger on. It's kind of like talking about spirituality. It's like, I can't, I can't see it, but I can feel it. Like, it seems kind of like a, a similar thread that we're talking about here. And that's where we as humans thrive is connecting all of the experience that we have and relating them to other people.
0: Funny you mentioned spirituality or religion. I just finished a, a wonderful book. It's called Four Thousand Weeks: Time Management for Mortals. And I normally shy away from time management books because they're all the fucking same, right? It's like put the big rocks in the thing, then yes. the middle middle rocks, then the then the small rocks. But what those books are missing is that the inevitable problem of when you actually put rocks in a cup and you fill up a cup, or or you you prioritize your tasks. The essence of time management, the way that it's conventionally taught, basically says, how can you accomplish the most amount of things?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What it's missing is that the minute that we accomplish those things, we've never actually improved upon the scale of figuring out what matters and what doesn't matter. And so, in essence, we just create more shit to do. Right. And and it's missing all of that. And so this book was a was a very much a welcome even and, and it was very, very good. Uh, but it it gave the example of from Judaism which, I mean, I'm Jewish, I'm not traditional. I'm not I'm not practicing, but I'm Jewish traditionally, sorry. And I got together with a friend of mine yesterday who is Orthodox, very, very uh, observant Jewish. And we got together for the afternoon. And one of the things I asked him was, was what was in this book because I had spoken to him about this before. So on, on the Shabbos, basically Friday from when there's, I think, three stars in the sky or something, basically Friday night, Saturday night, Jewish people, I don't know if you know this or not, but Jewish people, um, traditionally religious Jewish people observe what's called the Sabbath which means that they really just take time off from their life. So they don't work, which means that they don't get in cars. They don't use electricity. They often, they walk to synagogue, but they get together with friends and family. And one of the things that, uh, his name was Oliver, something who wrote this book, talked about, so he gave this example from Sweden of uh, time off and how they did this study, This this, and I think they measured it based off of antidepressant use. Mm -hmm. So how do you measure happiness, right? You have to kind of do something. Mm So uh, antidepressant use was how they measured it. And what they did, if I remember correctly, was they first tested giving people more time off. So instead of whatever, three weeks, they gave you five weeks off. And they found that it actually didn't improve people's happiness in any way. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And then they changed it a little bit and they didn't give them more time off. But what they did is they arranged society so that everybody got time off at the same time. Mm -hmm. And they found that that had a measurable impact on the overall happiness of the people and what the researchers said that was representative of was time off by yourself actually isn't enjoyable it's time off with community with other people that you love right. so that you could take a step back from your life without the feeling that there's work happening that you should be involved in mm,
1: okay yeah the FOMO at the same time in. yeah
0: the fomo of it right and so You know, it's, it's interesting with the Shabbos because of all the, I mean, religion isn't what it, what it's used to, what it used to be, but a lot of people who are still Jewish, but not particularly observant, still observe the Sabbath. Hmm. You wonder why that is. And it's not even a religious thing. And so I I asked my friend about this. I mean, he's observant in a bunch of different ways, but most often he said, it's not a religious thing. It's a welcome break from life.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: once a week. He goes, he goes, I read 50 books last year. You know how? I read one book every Shabbat. <laughs> like that's the only time he reads. This guy has five kids. He's in his right. low. He's in his early thirties. Mm-hmm. He has five kids. He lives on a one. He lives one floor in a house. But every Saturday, everybody is off. His whole community. Right. So they all walk to shul together. They have the neighbors come over. Whatever they their kids go over to neighbors. They walk to one another's places. It's it's old fashioned community, mm-hmm. and it's such a beautiful thing and it is a it is very much a welcome break that everybody in their world takes mm-hmm. i think a lot more people need something like that yeah right. but it's not time off because especially after covid especially after COVID-19, where everybody's now working from home. It's like the 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 lines of when you work and when you don't work seem to really get meshed. And it's, it's like true. you're never yeah. quite working, but you're never quite not working anymore, mm-hmm. kind of, right? And and I think that we actually need to work less, but more intensely, and then chill the fuck up, chill the right. fuck out more, <laughs> um, much more intensely. And I don't know, I mean, I, I think what we will find when we do that is that we're probably putting way too much emphasis on things that can be measured Mm -hmm. um, and not enough on stuff we can't. And so the the conclusion that I come to at the end of this chapter in the book is you don't become the obvious choice by doing the same thing as everybody else, just a little bit better. You do it, you become it by doing your own thing. And the only way that you can do your own thing, really, is to gather this wide variety of approaches, experiences of thought processes of 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 whatever this pace that is really i mean to your point you talked about emotion i think that's a big part of it just uniquely human why did that what was his name lewis capoli why yeah. did why did that happen it's because it was such a human thing right how he was singing and you could feel that mm-hmm. in his song you could you and you can feel that with great writing as well you can feel that i mean call it art but I think great like, business is great art as well. You could feel it. That's you yeah. can feel when some bullshit young person is trying to sell, you know, their the, the four steps to success because they're trying to make as much money as possible, or whatever. Mm. And then you could feel it when somebody is just like a true master at what they're actually selling. Like I have a a friend Matt Butuli, started a company called Pella Case, P-E-L-A, and they've sold uh, they do over a hundred million dollars a year and they sell compostable phone cases. That was their first product. I've sold some other stuff, but really that's their main product. So they've sold, they have over a million customers who have bought phone cases that compost. They're made out of flaxseed and they sell them for 55 to $65 a piece. Mm -hmm. You can go on Amazon and search for a phone case and you will get over a hundred results of phone cases that sell for 10 to $15. Right. And his phone cases sell for 55 to $65, Mm -hmm. which is crazy. If you don't think about what he's actually selling. Right. Because what he's actually selling is not a phone case, it's self-regard. It's emotion. Yeah. What he's actually selling is, the phone case is something that we touch multiple times a day and is something that other people see that we have. Because most of the time now when people are out, they put their phone on the on the table, people yep. see their phone case. What does it say about you? Well, if you have a regular plastic phone case that is going to end up at a garbage dump and sit there for thousands of years without de- de- degrading, you're part of the problem. Right. If you have, if you care about the environment and you have a compostable phone case where you're showing to everybody else and you're feeling like you're part of the solution, right? That is out in business, what they've been able to achieve.
1: Yeah. And
0: that's the difference.
1: Yeah. That's so powerful. Just that society aspect of it, of like that full buy-in of it. And as you said there, like so many people would be like, oh, the way the economics of it, it's like, you need to price compare and you need to do all this stuff. It's like, no, like you sell it at a higher mark but yeah. it's to a very specific people who are kind of part of your tribe you know right yeah. off the bat yeah
0: i was at the um i was at the science center in vancouver so they're out of they're out of british columbia canada and i was at the science center in vancouver and i i didn't know that this existed right but i was there with my family and all of a sudden i see this exhibit in the hallway and it's a surfboard that you can take pictures on and it's a whole bunch of phone cases it was an art installation by Pella case wow that talked about how much plastic ends up in the ocean and they recycled phone cases that would have otherwise gone in the ocean and created this art installation in the science center as a way to educate. And by the way, take a photo in front of it with your kids on the surfboard and tag us on Instagram Mm -hmm. and whatever. It's, it's, it's beautiful. Like it's so, it's so brilliant. Right.
1: Yeah. It's a story. Yeah. you feel the Um, whole story.
0: Yeah. And now you have hundreds of people every single day Mm -hmm. that are it's it's so i mean this is where i say like good businesses are the same as writing the same as anything else
1: yeah yeah well that yeah and that beautiful part that you talked about you know with the sabbath and you know as you said i think that's such a prevalent thing specifically now with the work from homework with technology where Mm -hmm. we can plug we can plug in 24 hours at any time and the uh yeah, I think as you said, like the the powerful thing about something like the Sabbath, where when everybody's off, it's such an energy shift that you feel there. Yep. Where it's yep. a you know, I've seen yep. that where like you blur the lines. I've talked about this with my uh clientele before of like have specific spaces for spots. Like if you're in your work chair, like that's a space where you go and do work. Don't browse your phone, like try and minimize those kind of blending of energies as much as possible.
0: As much as you can, but it can be difficult. So I built, I built a a structure on my side yard in my house. So I'm in it right now. So I built an office pot outside my house and that's where I work. I, I want my house and home. I want my home and my work to be separated. But even when I work from home, I had a separate room and the door was closed when I was in there and the door was closed when I wasn't in there. But then, When, so, so I was working out of an office. I rented an office for our team and for me, and I was working out of there when COVID happened. Of course, COVID shut everybody down. We were back at home and I worked in our spare bedroom. Yeah, I set up a table. I did what everybody else did. Right. But the problem was that door was beside my son's door. Uh. And so every time I put him to bed, even though the door was closed, I'd look at that other door that I'd know that my work was happening in, and I'd be thinking about work and I'd zap back into it. It's very, it's very, very difficult not to have that happen. Right. Um, what I found really helps, really has helped me is reading fiction. Really? And I, I learned this back from my days of being a personal trainer, dude, always have a book on you. Yeah. Even if you think you've got a back-to-back day and you're not going to have time to read, always have a book that you can grab within arm's length. Whenever we go out as a family, anything like that. I just, I just put my Kindle in the, in the car at the mm-hmm. same time. I always have it in my kid's stroller or whatever. And
1: What does that do for you?
0: That makes me not reach for my phone. Okay. That is a muscle that I'm training continually to be able to read just one or two or three pages at a time Mm -hmm. in the in-between moments and then put it down. It's almost a relaxation of of the brain. Mm -hmm. And it avoids me stepping into work mode, just knee jerk because I have nothing else to do.
1: Right.
0: I mean the amount of times where I have two kids, right? Jaden, who's like one and a half, he'll fall asleep in the car, and Calvin and my uh, Calvin is six and a half, and my wife will go in and I don't know do whatever they're doing, go to his code his coding class or his dance class or whatever they're doing, and we're all together. They'll go in and I'll stay in the car while Jaden sleeps, and because I got my book. But otherwise, and I don't know whether he's going to sleep for three minutes or whether he's going to sleep for an hour. Right. But I got my book, so it's fine. What would I do otherwise? I dick around on my phone. Right. I kind of half work, I kind of half not work. I, I'd be on social media, I'd, I'd be comparing myself to other people, I'd be arguing with people, I'd be getting into that negative he- headspace. Mm-hmm. It helps me just avoid all of that. Um, yeah. That's my single trick and it was the same with personal training. You know, clients cancel last minute, it happens. Mm-hmm. I just always had a book.
1: Yeah. But fiction it's, um, it's, it's so interesting that you said that about fiction, because that's something that I learned this year of I love. I love reading is I was such a deep nonfiction person, like yeah. any book about productivity, about business, sure. about, you know, leadership, all the fun things. And there's great books out there and you can get so much from it. But right. I started reading like just kind of stupid fantasy novels, like Robin Hove, like, you know, the, you know, the, uh, the Emperor's Assassin and stuff like that, like other things out there. And it helped me so much. And one, because I wanted to improve my writing skills with it. And Stephen King's book on writing, I think is really powerful. And he talks about just reading everything and anything, but getting into fiction work. But it also was this like mental reset that I felt that I actually started to think clearer on Ideas that I actually wanted to work with, yeah, as yeah. far as things for my business, you know, things for you know, ideas for different writing pieces. Just by getting away from, and not for like, oh, now I'm going to read fiction because I think it's a biohack of getting in. Actually, doing it because <laughs> I, enjo- because I enjoy. Oh, I enjoy the it. Story.
0: Yeah, I enjoy it. Yep, I enjoy it. There was there was something in this book, in this four thousand weeks book, that really stuck out to me, which is just the value in having a hobby, but more more so like. Having something that's not performative, having something where you don't need to feel like you're perceived to be any sort of an expert. You know, mm-hmm. it's not it goes beyond just like not having to make money on it. It's like, no, you're allowed to like suck at this and be an amateur at this, and you're just doing it because you enjoy it and there's no pressure to like do it well. Right. I took up like urban vegetable gardening two years ago and I didn't do it this year uh just because we had too much going on with my son. But like I hired a coach and like I wasn't a good vegetable gardener, but I'm learning, right. right? I have a little notebook with notes and what grew and what didn't grew and what worked mm-hmm. and what didn't work. And uh, he gave, he gave it a a fun example. Rod Stewart, you know, I'm too sexy for, no, no, not I'm too sexy. Uh, One of the, one of the songs like that.
1: If you want my body. If you want my body. (laughs) So like,
0: like super over sexualized, like 1980s (laughs) singer, right. Is obsessed with model trains and would get a separate hotel room. And he would have his train sets transported with him and set up in a separate hotel room when he would be at concerts. And, And you think about that and you contrast that with like Richard Branson and his, you know, wake skiing or whatever he does. And it's like, Richard Branson has that, but you almost feel like it's part of his brand as like an adventurer. Right. Whereas, let's do it. Like you could not find (laughs) something that opposes more this like sexual figure, you know, singer songwriter. Than a
1: model train. Yeah.
0: Than a model train. But there's something so endearing about that. He clearly does it just for the love of the thing. Right and uh and and i i think a lot more of us would benefit from that type of thing just as a way to have a mental relaxation as a way to just kind of step away from this performative aspect of our lives that we all yeah obsess into yeah. i have a i have a good friend good friend i have a friend who sold his company i don't know how much money he got he's, he's tight-lipped on it but like enough money he doesn't need to think about money like tens of millions dollars and uh you know, some medical software company or something, right? Which are those types of companies where you're like, I haven't even heard of it. How did you just sell that thing for 120 million dollars or some shit? It's one of those. Yeah. And and so anyway, he sold his company and uh and he got a job for minimum wage landscaping at a Zen Buddhist garden. And he's been doing that ever since. Right. And nobody knows. He's just <laughs> he shows up at nine, he leaves at 4:30. And he just trims hedges and rakes up leaves. And
1: that's just like, that's great. Oh, that's that's awesome. Yeah.
0: Like, you know, I, I see these, I see these guys like outside of my house, I see the garbage men picking up leaves. Mm -hmm. Like, it's like a bad job, man. It's like three buddies on like a nice crisp fall day outside Mm -hmm. active, joking around, hucking bags of leaves into the car. It's like, yeah, it's like the old um, Dilbert comic. If you ever read Dilbert with the smartest man in the world was a garbage man. And at one point del boot looks at looks at one of the other characters and he goes smartest man in the world decided to be a garbage man who we'd argue yeah <laughs> <laughs>
1: like, yeah there is there's something that. there's something about tasks like remedial tasks like that that just the the repetitive of uh, uh, you know work of it and stuff i worked landscaping three years and i have such yeah. you know, glorious memories of it same. growing up Yeah, same. But it's interesting, Thanks. like with the story you said about Rod Stewart, there's another thread that you had um, in this post was intelligent people tend to overcomplicate things. <laughs> and Thank what you. I thought, like, I think overcomplicate, it's a great word. But what I thought of that as well, um, when I was reading this was make things more over serious than they need to be, you mm, know, and not have a, not have a little bit of a I think sometimes when you are. You've built some experience up. You're a smart guy. You've been in a business of fitness, of developing business software and stuff for a long time. Like it can almost sometimes can be hard to put yourself back in that beginner mode and actually not take yourself so seriously. I'm a business. Or I'm a coach. Like I'm this person. People require people rely on me to know these answers. And I think I found for a while in my career of when I started to actually know some things, Mm -hmm. almost get a little hesitant on that. Like, I don't know, like always think I needed to have an answer for the people I was working with and take myself too seriously on there. And as you said, like, if you have a model train analogy for yourself of just kind of putting yourself in be like, this makes no sense of my life of why I love this so much but yeah. actually just kind of step away from the seriousness of life and actually just be a little bit more free caring. That was my thoughts when I read this.
0: It's interesting. So there's kind of two threads there and I talk about these two threads, but I talk about them in completely different sections, but it's interesting that you you, you thought of them uh, the same way. That's good feedback. I So yeah, I mean, in the book, I literally say, take what you do seriously, but don't take yourself too seriously. Yeah. And to me, that has to do with professionalism, and I think that professionalism is a lie that needs to die. I think that archaic industry norms are designed to bring everybody to the middle, which is safe. The middle is where nobody disrupts the natural order, but customers don't buy from industries, they buy from humans. And whenever you look at companies or brands that are really admired that really stand out, they're not professional. Professionalism is ridiculous. It's nonsense. Lambert's cafe literally throws food at their customers. Their website is throwedrolls.com. And they just, I mean, you can see videos of it. They just like chuck hot rolls at all their customers when they come in. And how did it start? One day, the son of the guy who owns it, you know, cafe has been around for like eight years, right? One day, the son of the guy who owns it, it was super busy in there. And a bunch of people wanted food. And it was just like, yo, catch. (laughs) He just chucked it at him. And that just became their thing. Mm Mm-hmm. People travel from all over. It's tour buses because they chuck food at you. Yeah, codes against humanity is perhaps the better right. example <laughs> of this, right? They run anti-sale satirical Black Friday promotions, mm-hmm. statement opposing consumerism. They're an online e-commerce brand. Black yeah. Friday is their go-to, right? Mm-hmm. In two thousand and fourteen, they sold literal poo. They sold sterilized bull feces, and they cost six dollars each, and over thirty thousand people bought it and they donated the profits to charity. And give you tons of examples like this. And give mm-hmm. you examples in the fitness industry too. Yeah. And so the, the thread on taking yourself too seriously, I think take what you do seriously. I think take the results of your customers seriously, but I don't think that you can take yourself too seriously. Mm. Um, and and so that's one thread, right? But the thread that you started with is very, very different, which is the idea of intelligent people over complicating things. Herb Kelleher was the CEO of Southwest Airlines. And there was a reporter one time who asked him, so Southwest is known, I guess, for like people who smile all the time, all their flight attendants, everybody is super friendly. Mm-hmm. So the reporter asked him, they said, you know, how, like, what's your trick? Like, do you, like, what do you do for training? Like, how do you get people to to smile all the time? And he just looks at the reporter and he goes, it's easy. We just hire smiley people. Yeah, They could develop extensive human resources programs. They could do all of these programs to empower people to smile more, but... Empowering people to change is hard. An easier solution is to just find people doing all the same things, exhibiting the behaviors that we already want. We've been indoctrinated to assume that it has to be hard if it's going to work. And that's simply not true. I think that any combination of ego, greed, envy, fear, mindless imitation of others can actually lead us towards more difficult paths than necessary. Mm -hmm. I think that any hard problem from hiring to getting customers to generating referrals should probably be avoided Mm -hmm. i heard a line the other day on a podcast that i keep repeating to myself over and over and over again and i can i can give you an example of this actually from our business where we visited this but it's it i think it was so sticky in my mind because it's such a stupid line but then you think about it and it's such a smart line which is the best way to solve the problem is to solve the problem
1: Mm.
0: and it's such a dumb statement But when you think about how most people tend to solve problems, they don't actually solve the underlying problem. What they do is they solve tangential aspects of the problem or they put band-aids on the second order consequences of problems Mm -hmm. as opposed to saying, no, what's the actual problem? Can we just solve that? Right. And so we had this where, you know, I have a the online trainer mentorship. So we have a a high-end mentorship for our people. And we're not loud in how we promote it. I haven't put a single paid advertisement out about this thing. But the quality of the program is wonderful. And my reputation in the industry has helped sell it. And it's been around for a number of years now. And so people know about it. These people talk when things are good. But our sales team has has been saying for a while now, they said, you know, we're getting so many people from other programs that have just had really, really bad experiences with other programs. Uh And they're coming in here and they're really jaded. And hey, John, can you please put out a video of where you basically talk about how you've been around for so long and here's the amount of effort that we've put into this and here's how we really, because a lot of the time people are kind of promised all of these levels of support that aren't being delivered because it's really difficult to deliver a really hand-holding, high-end, high-touch experience what right. we deliver in that. And so a lot of people promise it and then don't deliver, right? That's what we're told. I don't know if it's true or not but I don't pay attention to what other people do. That's what our sales team is being told. So they said, John, can you please like broadcast this and talk about how long? I was like, that's not gonna solve the problem,
1: right?
0: Right? The problem is if once somebody's already been jaded and had a bad experience, the more nice sounding words that we say, the worse it will be. That's what got them into this in the first Mm -hmm. place. That's not not the problem. The problem is they're finding these other people and signing up with them first. Mm -hmm. So we have two options, right? One option is to say, we need to be the first one that people find, which means we need to be much more aggressive on the front end with lead generation and try to be the first to find. Now, if you solve that problem, another problem arises, Mm -hmm. which means people are going to be a lot less familiar with us Mm -hmm. because by definition, we're going to reach out to colder audiences. And when that happens, it's going to take a lot more nurturing and sales. So our conversion rates and our sales are going to be lower and we're going to have more salespeople and they're going to make less money because they're going to have to take longer to convert people. So that's fine if you understand that that's a repercussion of that. Or we say, this is a problem that we can't solve, because I don't think it is. I don't think, I mean, I don't think that there's anything that we can do
1: Mm -hmm.
0: to solve this problem of somebody finding somebody else first and having in their mind a less than stellar experience. Mm -hmm. But when you start putting it through that filter of, you know, in order to solve the problem, solve the problem. You get away from, hey, let's stop putting Band-Aids on the ship. Right. Let's actually think about what's really happening here.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, we talk about this idea of easy more if you want. This is one of the yeah. pillars of of the book. I think that looking for easier solutions is
1: yeah <laughs> is well, it's so inter- important. well, it's interesting too. I think it's, you know, when we talk about overcomplicating things, I used to see it all the time when I managed a club that the first – coach first trainer that came in with no experience they sold the first person that came in and they sat down and talked to because they had they had no idea how to sell they had no idea like a process of it they were just excited to talk to somebody in front of them about health and fitness and then once you teach them actually things then they think that it's more complicated than not and Mm -hmm. as you as you kind of said too like there's another thing you said like ideas are worthless without execution which a client asked me the other day, which I thought was an interesting question, said, is there a difference between overthinking and thinking things through? And yeah. what is the, and what is that difference? And I said, I can what? tell you
0: what that is. Yeah. What do you That's think? That's another section of the book. Well, I want to hear what you think first.
1: Well, I I thought about it. I was like, I didn't just want to throw like a cold answer right out. But I said, yeah, I think it comes down to taking action on things like where overthinking would come more from non-action and believing mm. that there's always a better idea that you're not thinking of and over-complicating it in a sense, versus yeah. thinking things through is more a, okay, this seems like the best approach to go, let's give it a shot, and then let's come back and revisit it.
0: I like that. I have a chapter in the book that's called Remain Optimistically Ignorant, and I think that optimistic ignorance is really important, I think. And and so the chapter ends by basically helping somebody identify what I call their ignorance quotient. What is the point where you know enough about a thing where you're going to avoid catastrophic failure once you take action, even if all goes to hell? And I think anything beyond that point of knowledge acquisition is actually going to be a detriment. It's it's going to delay you taking action, but also you're going to start to second guess yourself a lot. And so at, at what stage is that? Right. right. And I think I think there's two components to it. The first is to is to understand fear and understand what fear is and actually do fear-based analysis. Uh, this goes way, 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 way back. Seneca once said, "If you wish to stave off all fear, imagine that the worst that can happen most definitely will happen." The way to eliminate fear. I mean, fear is not a rational thing. Fear is an irrational response to the unknown. We only fear things because we don't really understand them. Think about consider a beasting. The best way to know whether somebody has never been stung by a bee before is whether they're scared of bee stings. Right. Because you're told that it really hurts, but you don't really know what that means until you get stung by a bee. And then you get stung by a bee and you're like, yeah, that sucked. But like, whatever, it's fine. Like, I'm fine. And then you're not as scared the next time because you've been able to actually understand now, like, you have some idea of what it is. And so that's the idea with with this kind of fear-based analysis is if I were to take action right now, based off of what I know, what is the absolute worst thing that can happen? Mm -hmm. Is everybody who I know going to think that I'm ridiculous and stupid? Am I going to go bankrupt? Am I going to get into debt that's going to become overwhelming? Or in most common cases, it ain't that bad. I might think that a couple people are going to think that I'm silly online, but really the reality of it is nobody's paying attention to me because everybody's thinking about themselves and how much everybody's paying attention to them anyway. But even if they are paying attention to me, is it that bad that a couple people on the internet think that I made a silly move? You know how much stuff I failed with? You followed me for a while. How many things have I done? Well, arguably only two of them have ever worked, maybe three. I've put out uh, 11 books. I've put on five conferences. I have a software platform. I've done six different digital programs. Mm-hmm. arguably two things have contributed to call it 95% yeah. of my success. Yeah.
1: You know, you said something once that really hit me. This was a few years ago. You uh, put something on your podcast where you said, I wasn't the most qualified to write this book. I forget oh what no. book it was. I wasn't the most knowledgeable. I wasn't the most research or anything, but I'm the one who did it. Yeah. It's like, and I actually just did it. And I, that was such a powerful thing of, just stepping back and being like, yeah, you're never gonna be the the one that is the absolute pinnacle of everything that you're talking about. As we oh. went to the last podcast, as the first thing that you put in here is we're all know that we're all amateurs. It's really All amateurs. Yeah.
0: So I actually it's funny you bring that up because I actually start this this chapter. A lot of the stories aren't about me, but what really fits, oh. I put in a story about me. So the story of me waiting to ignite the fire is actually the start of this chapter. And yeah, I mean the first the first three sentences. I was 24 years old when I self-published my first book. It's a guide for personal trainers called Ignite the Fire. I'd only been full-time in the gym for three years. Nothing about writing that book at such a young age was audacious or courageous. The truth is that I knew so little about all of the reasons why I shouldn't have written the book that I wrote the book. And then I I talk about how it happened, which is basically I made it up step by step by step. Like I wasn't trying to write a book at all. What happened was that I carried a clipboard every day when I trained my clients. That's what you did on the back of the clipboard had the workout programs and a blank piece of paper on the blank piece of paper. I take notes. And it was just like a, like a point for like client told me, they had paint bench pressing, picked up a piece of garbage. Another trainer instructed deadlifts wrong, like dangerous intervene. Like I have a crush on the secretary, like anything. And then, at night, what I'd do is I'd go home and I'd review my day and I'd expand on each of them and talk about what I learned, or I'd call a friend, or I'd do some research about like how I could have tackled that situation better. This was a self-development exercise. That's all that it was. And then after about a year, I showed the document to my mom and it was over 100,000 words. And she said, I think you got a book, but I need an editor. And I didn't know what an editor was. I mean, I didn't know anybody who would written a book, let alone any editors, But I knew where books existed. So I went to the bookstore and I wrote down the names of the best-selling fitness books. And I found as many of their emails as I could online. And I sent each of them an email. And I said, hey, I'm trying to write a book. Do you know any, can, can you introduce me to your editor? Brad Schoenfeld introduced me to Kelly James Anger, who edited Ignite the Fire. That's how I found my editor. Every step of it was exactly that process. And, you know, I say, I, I say near the end of that section it's like, it's like when you're driving on a highway and it's pitch black and you've got your high beams on, you know, you've got miles to go and that there's going to be twists and turns, but all you can see right now is what's directly ahead of you. So you focus on that as you continue to drive new stretches of road, light up until you approach your destination. Optimistic ignorance is kind of like that. Mm. A lot crazy. of us, a lot of us these days are informed pessimists and we just know too much about it. We know the reasons why it's going to be hard or a bad idea or why somebody else is better suited to do the job. And so we second guess ourselves, not because we don't know enough, because we know too much. Do you know why grass exists? Why we have grassy front lawns? No. Because in the 1300s, medieval kings planted it as a way to show off their wealth. Grass is the perfect status symbol. It produces nothing of value. It needs a lot of land, requires a lot of costly labor to maintain, because this was before sprinklers and lawnmowers. We don't need to show off our wealth with grass anymore. That's what social media is for, right? right? But the status symbol outlasted all the monarchies about it. Like, I don't have a problem with grass, but it's interesting to learn that our obsession with it is nothing more than a remnant of the past, isn't it? Yeah. That it really only exists because people kept copying one another over and over and over again until nobody knew why they were growing grass, but figured out that there had to be a reason, so they kept doing it. Copying others is inevitable byproduct of constant exposure. That's. Sure. There's no way to resist it. I say straight up in this chapter, if I was 24 years old today, I don't think that I would be able to write Ignite the Fire. I really don't. I think that I'd be discouraged by how many people were already saying what I wanted to say online, not because my ideas were original beforehand, but because now it's impossible for me not to know that they aren't original. Uh I think that I'd I'd look up how to self-publish a book. I think that like Alice, I'd fall down the rabbit hole of podcasts, YouTube's, Social media posts, and I think that the overwhelm would be paralyzing. I think that I'd always need to know one more thing. I think yeah. that I'd be scared that I'd be getting it wrong, and and so that's what. Yeah, I mean, that's what that's yeah. what a lot of this, I a lot that- of this material is about. How do you overcome that? Yeah. Knowing that there's no way to avoid it. Right, like it's gonna be there. Like you can't <sighs> mm-hmm. ignore it. Is isn't this isn't like it was in two thousand and nine.
1: Um, That's that's such an interesting uh, point, John, as you said, of going back, because we think of experience as the most valuable thing. And it is like, it's important to have that experience and get the reps in. But also, that inexperience that you have of almost like kind of blind ignorance and energy to just try something is a powerful thing as well. So having that, like that inexperience, and just like kind of a blind optimism can be a superpower as well. And as you said, kind of going through that, that exercise of fear of actually saying, what's the worst case scenario? You know, this is like a crucial conversations, you know, analogy right here, when right. you need to have that conversation with somebody, and you can play that in your head a million different ways of what are they going to say. But then as soon as you have that conversation and realize, oh, I'm still okay, I'm alive. Yeah, yeah. you start thinking of, oh, what other conversations do I need right. to have with people? And it starts opening the floodgates, you realize right. that it's so many things in our own perspective that can just pull us back when you actually look objectively at what is it that I'm truly scared of if I do this? Yeah. All of a sudden you realize that, yeah, it's it's kind of like seeing the monster in the monster movie. The scariest part about Jaws is you never see the shark.
0: Yeah. Yeah, there is a, uh, oh God, what's the paranormal activity or something? I think yeah. it
1: was. It's like the scariest fucking movie
0: ever. And you never see anything. No. Oh God, I hate horror movies. I close my I close my eyes whenever a preview comes on. I hate horror movies, man. I'm I'm yeah. such a little weenie when it comes to that kind of stuff. I go on a roller coaster with my six-year-old son. It's like a kid's really? roller coaster. Like <laughs> let me, let me he comes comes down.
1: My wife's like, oh man, how was true. it? And
0: Calvin goes, Daddy screamed. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's so funny yeah you know what me and me and my girlfriend we watched the original halloween on halloween this year and no those way. old those old 70s movies yeah. where they let the suspense build up Yeah, it was so different. no chance
0: but, no chance um, i ain't doing i ain't doing any of that stuff man yeah uh, so
1: well john dude this has been a blast thank you so much for connecting man. again man i love as i said i appreciate the hell out of you with everything that you're doing i can't wait for this new book to come out but you have one that's god uh, me just neither I'm sure. So, so obvious choice podcast. That's the one people go check out. It's coach. Yep. It's coach Goodman. Go check it out on Instagram. When's the book, the 4,000 weeks. Is that what it's called?
0: Oh, that's not my book.
1: That's not your book okay no no
0: no that's out that was a, that's a okay. i mean yeah. it's called Four Thousand weeks um okay. it's not my book i recommend it it's, it's yeah. a wonderful book
1: but do you have an why. idea for, do you have an idea for this new book of when it's out or is it still just kind of uh a-
0: january yeah january end of january 2025 uh okay. so the the idea is pre-orders one of the nice things i mean this is as you know right this is the first time that i'm, I'm conventionally publishing a book so i'm working with HarperCollins collins on it it's been a great great experience so far much more difficult than self-publishing, uh, hands down. But it's making the work much better, which mm-hmm. is really what matters. But because, I mean, think about like even the process of selling the book. I had to write an 80-page proposal along with my agent right. that we submitted to basically like 20 or 30 like biggest business publishers in the world. And then I had phone calls with them all. And uh, phone calls were the ones like there were six phone calls ones who bid against it. And then they had an auction over the book and stuff. But I had to write an 80-page effectively sales letter for the book and then sell it on the phone to six of quite literally the smartest publishing people in the world about why I'm the guy to write this book, about why there's a market for it, about mm-hmm. why it's unique, about why it's special. Yeah. And uh, and I guess they liked it because it ended up, I mean, one of them didn't didn't make a bid on it, but the other five, you know, all made big offers on the book. And uh, so I guess it worked, but think about how good you have to be in advance. Yeah. Like this is before I wrote it. Think about how well you have to frame your idea yeah. and 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 that. Versus self-publishing, where it's like, I have an idea. Right. Here <laughs> you go. Right? Um, the, the, the There's a different level of thoughtfulness. Anyway, one of the nice parts about it is that there's going to be pre-orders available as of April. So fine. it'll be up on Amazon uh, as of April. So as I'm talking about it with stuff like this, as of April in 2024, you should be able to find the Obvious Choice book on Amazon and pre-order it, which, is, which I've never been able to do with any of my other books. That's uh, awesome. Which would be nice.
1: Yeah, Love it, man. Yeah, dude. Appreciate, appreciate you, brother. Thank you so much. Uh, you too. Thank you. All right, man. Talk to you guys soon. Bye. Peace. Thank you so much for joining me today. I hope you found some great value here. And if you like this episode, please drop a comment and leave us a five-star rating and review. It does more to build the show than you can imagine. And do not forget to check out and join the Strength Connection Facebook group. In this group, I share the biggest takeaways and lessons from these amazing conversations, as well as training and strength tips for pursuing mastery and fulfillment in life. This group is filled with individuals looking to take full control over their strength, and it's the perfect space to explore new ideas and to share your journey. You'll also get exclusive access to the Strength Connection Mastery Seminars. It's a deep dive into the physical, mental, and spiritual training that you can begin using immediately. So do not wait. Go now. Seriously, go. Much love to you. Thank you so much, and I'll catch you on the next one.